like to imagine I have no idea what's going on. And as you might imagine, it's not hard. <laughs> but when I do that, I'm not, just, I'm not just feigning ignorance. You see, it's possible to be, to be so familiar with the story. It's possible to be so familiar with its characters and its setting that you inadvertently tune out very important details. And so sometimes it's necessary to see a familiar text with fresh eyes. And today's Gospels text is a quintessential example of this. You see, at, at first glance, today's text sounds benign. It sounds rather plain. If we were uncareful, here's how today's Gospel text might sound. After the arrest of John the Baptist, Jesus goes into Galilee and calls his first disciples. And that's it. And while that synopsis isn't wrong, it's far too sanitized. It doesn't possess any of the nuance and subtleties that make this text the dynamic portion of Scripture it truly is. And what I would like to do this morning is to shade in a few parts of the story that are easy to overlook. I want to point out a few subtleties and show that these verses, while unassuming on the surface, actually signal a watershed moment in the ministry of Jesus. So if you have not yet, please turn with, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. <clears throat> so our text opens with some rather ominous news. John the Baptist had been arrested, and when Jesus hears this news, Matthew tells us that his response was to withdraw into Galilee. And of course that makes sense to people who know the story. Jesus knew that the same people who arrested John would now seek to arrest him as well. And while the time of Jesus to be arrested was coming, he knew his time was not yet. So it makes all the sense in the world that Jesus would then withdraw into Galilee. But let's pretend like we don't know the story of the Gospels so well. Let's pretend that we don't know that Jesus understands perfectly well that a cross is in his future, that he has already accepted what he must do, and he will willingly mantle that burden when the time comes. Let's pretend we don't know any of that. If we do that, do you know how verse 12 can actually sound? To people unfamiliar with the Gospels, that verse can sound like Jesus is running scared. It can sound like Jesus is just trying to get out of Dodge before he's rested as well, and retreating north just happened to be the direction he chose. His flight into Galilee was made in a panic. It was random and done mainly in self-preservation. And I wonder, <clears throat> if someone were to level those accusations against Jesus, I wonder how those of us familiar with the story might respond. How could we demonstrate that those accusations are actually false? What evidence could we bring to bear that the truth was quite different? If only there were evidence to show that the move of Jesus into Galilee was done purposefully, that it was a calculated move, that it was actually evidence of his lordship. If only there was some prophecy made seven centuries before the birth of Jesus that gave us insight into his motivation. Look starting in verse 13. <clears throat> and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here's the truth about verse 12. The withdrawal of Jesus into Galilee wasn't random or unforeseen at all. It was the fulfillment of a prophecy made centuries before by the prophet Isaiah. And that isn't just some Bible trivia factoid for you. 
No, the fact that this prophecy of Isaiah is where, is, is where our first bit of subtlety actually emerges. Here's why. Isaiah was a prophet during a time of great upheaval and division among God's people. The 12 tribes of Israel were united under the rule of Saul and David and Solomon. But after Solomon's death, the kingdom split in two. There were 10 tribes forming a northern kingdom and two forming a southern kingdom. And by the time of Isaiah, the people of God had existed in this divided state for over two centuries. And while that may have grieved the heart of the prophet, what he would witness with his own eyes was most assuredly worse. Isaiah watched as a foreign nation, Assyria, swept into Israel and conquered the northern ten tribes. The Assyrians enslaved and deported practically every person, murdering and brutalizing anyone who got in their way. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel were gone in the blink of an eye, lost to history, removed from the land. But even in the midst of all of that carnage, it seems Isaiah still had a reason to hope. Isaiah foretold a day when those conquered lands of the northern ten tribes, lands that would dwell in darkness for some 700 years, would one day finally behold a great light. Isaiah foretold of a day when the Messiah himself would travel into the conquered lands of the north, into the ancestral lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, and would rescue his wayward children from enslavement and darkness. You see, after the arrest of John the Baptist, the place to where Jesus withdrew wasn't just some random spot. It wasn't just the best port in a storm. No, Jesus was found in the exact place where Isaiah prophesied. The withdrawal of Jesus into Galilee wasn't a retreat in the face of danger. The the withdrawal of Jesus into Galilee was a rescue mission, seven centuries in the making. His motivation for withdrawing into Galilee was to bring light to a people that were trapped in darkness for centuries, to reconcile to himself a wayward people, a people who had dwelt in the shadow of death for long enough. And with the arrival of Jesus, the darkness that had consumed the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali receded. Day was now breaking upon the people once hopelessly lost. And I wonder, how many people really understood what Jesus was doing that day? I wonder if they really comprehended the scope and the grandeur and the sheer beauty of what this withdrawal into Galilee truly meant. I wonder how many well-meaning, God-fearing people today will skim these few verses with just a glance and barely notice that either. Because it's very easy to overlook small details when you're convinced they're not so important. Speaking of small details that don't sound all that important, look with me at verse 17. It reads, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that Jesus was in the land of darkness, he was calling the people to repentance. But the verse doesn't just say that he's just calling people to repentance. No. Verse 17 tells us that Jesus is calling people to repentance and providing them with why they should. When Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's like saying, everybody watch out. A train is coming and you're standing on the tracks. That explanation tells you what to do. Watch out. But it also tells you why you should do it. A train is coming. 
repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is kind of like that. But it's not entirely like that. You see, when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's a warning, but it's not just a warning. It's also an invitation. Christ, the light of the world, is walking in the darkness, pronouncing judgment upon the darkness itself. But he's also calling out to those people trapped in that darkness, and he's giving them a way out. He's inviting them to step out of the darkness and into the light. Christ is telling anyone who would listen to repent, to renounce the darkness that they lived in, to turn and face the light and enter into his kingdom. And according to Matthew, that message was something Jesus never stopped preaching. (laughs) He wasn't here to coddle your sin. He was here to call you out of it. He wasn't here to be the latest guru with a new set of teachings. No, Jesus came to fix what was wrong with the earth. He came here for a fight. He came so that the established kingdoms of this world, kingdoms of darkness, would no longer be the ones who controlled you. And whether the darkness in this world is found in Rome or whether it was found in your heart, he came to overthrow it and root it out everywhere it might be found. And I wonder how many times I've glanced at that phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and failed to recognize just how deep that is. How many times have I failed to recognize that those words signaled an invasion aimed at recapturing the whole world. And Jesus was just the tip of the spear. It's very easy to overlook small details when you're convinced they're not important. And that idea is illustrated in the last part of our gospel text as well. Starting in verse 18, this very well-known section of Scripture begins like this. It's here in these these verses of Matthew that Jesus calls his first disciples, and on the surface, it appears to be fairly simple. Verse 19, Jesus walks up to Simon Peter and Andrew and says, Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. A little later, Jesus makes a similar statement to James and John. That statement, follow me, is such an iconic statement and so prolific in its usage that everyone recognizes it immediately. But for as simple as it sounds, there's a lot going on under the surface. You see, whatever else it means to be a disciple of Jesus, whatever nuances and subtleties it may contain, there is one central feature in being a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. Those words are simple, (laughs) but for as simple as they may be, the reality is far more complex. You see, if a disciple of Jesus is a person that follows Jesus, then a disciple of Jesus goes where Jesus is going, right? Right. Simple. And at the beginning, I think the disciples knew that. If they were following Jesus, of course they would find themselves where he was. But what they learned along the way is that Jesus consistently led them into places they never imagined they would step foot. Whether it was the darkness of physical places like Samaria and pagan temples, or the metaphorical darkness they encountered in the hearts of men, every time the disciples turned around, they found themselves following Jesus into some new area of darkness, confronting some new stronghold of rebellion and sin. And every single time the disciples follow They don't always say the right things. They don't always have a mature faith, but they do always follow him. 
And what was true for those disciples 2,000 years ago is true for his disciples today sitting in this room. Jesus looks at every single one of us and says the same two words to us that he said to James and John, that he said to Peter and Andrew. Jesus looks at you and says, follow me. And if we are disciples of Jesus, then we will do exactly that. A disciple of Jesus doesn't know what new darkness tomorrow holds, what new calamity is just around the corner. We may not know where the Lord will lead us next, into what dark place he will call us to inhabit with him. We may not know any of that. But as it turns out, we don't have to. We don't have to know which direction we go next because we know the one that we follow. And as long as we are disciples of Jesus, as long as we follow where he leads we will always find ourselves in the right place. Amen.